Grace Baptist Church. You know, that song, I uh, just wanted to briefly mention, a friend of mine from Vermont sent that to me. And uh, she had sent it to me and said, hey, I was praying for you and uh, came across this song. I thought you might like it. I had never heard it before and uh, loved it, actually, and asked Pastor Wes if we could learn it as a congregation. I hope it uh, is an encouragement to you. It's a tremendous text and a tremendous reminder to us about God's goodness and the sovereignty of his plan, even when it may not feel uh, like it's good, uh, it is always good and according to his will for our lives. We always like to take this time in our service and welcome those of you that may be a first-time guest with us here at Grace. We're so thankful to have you here with us today, and we would invite you to take a moment right now or before you leave to use our guest card. You can scan it with your phone. The QR code is printed on the card in front of you. It looks just like the one on the screen that's right now behind me, and that'll take you to a a couple, a place where you can answer a couple questions for us, and you can send that in, and we'll be glad to follow up with you, get back to you. If you have any questions about our ministry, anything we can uh, answer for you, or if you want more information about a particular ministry, uh, you can use that and let us know. As always, if you're a ret- returnee and you've been around Grace for a long time, there's something you want to know about, maybe more information about some of the kids programs that are getting ready to kick off or some of the classes that'll be starting here in just a couple of weeks, you can use that same card and uh, email us that way as well. Or you can email us through our website, gracenc.org, and we would be glad to answer uh, you through the website as well. I also wanted to just take a a brief moment and mention uh, the Anchorage Camp to you once again. They've been mentioned several times here in our services over the last few weeks. And a couple of couple of matters to mention with them. Our high school students, those in ninth through 12th grade, just spent Thursday and Friday at the Anchorage. And so let me encourage you to pray. Uh, school, that was their high school school camp. And so pray for them as they're coming back tomorrow to classes and pray for some of the decisions uh, that were made. Our speaker this year was a man who was born with no arms and uh, came to Christ when he was 15 and a tremendous testimony, and God has used him in powerful ways. He's spoken to the NFL Players Association, I believe, in all kinds of places like that. Um, so the Lord has really used him, and just his testimony was uh, powerful to listen to. And so pray that the kids, as they came back, come back to school tomorrow, would uh, take what they heard and learned at school camp and apply it to the rest of the school year. And then tomorrow, our middle school, that's 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, they actually don't get to spend the night anymore. There's too many of them. So we have to bust them over. They come home, and then they go back for the, for the second day. But pray for them this week. They have a different speaker, uh, but be in prayer for them. I also wanted to just briefly mention uh, regarding the Anchorage. I spent some time uh, with David Ulrich on Thursday. He gave me the grand tour and uh, showed me all that they are planning and some of the uh, ideas that they have and some of the opportunities that the Lord is bringing to them. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Anchorage camp, it's in Lake Waccamaw, which is between here and Whiteville, uh, between Leland and Whiteville, Whiteville, as you say it around these parts of the world. Um, And so it's out uh, Lake Waccamaw, beautiful area. The camp has been there for a number of years. But they have big plans, and the Lord is really opening up some opportunities for them. Um, One of the opportunities that I mentioned a few weeks ago that I wanted to reiterate a couple more times is they are installing a two-story mini golf um, uh, course for kids to come and play. So, well, you know, that doesn't seem super spiritual. Mini golf is pretty spiritual, I think. If anything, it tests your patience. 
Um, but uh, pray about that. They're raising money uh, for each hole, and as a church, we've already raised, I don't know the exact number, but several hundred dollars toward uh, paying for one of the holes, and we would like to sponsor one of those. So if the Lord would lay it on your heart, uh, that is something that I know that they could use, and uh, just a tremendous spirit. They've had a lot of turnover in their camp, uh, camping staff, and it has just been, it was a tremendous blessing. Michelle and I went over Thursday and spent some time, and it was just a great, great encouragement to us. And so please, please uh, remember them in your prayers. Uh, let's go to prayer, and then we will turn our attention this morning to our text. Father, we are once again grateful and thankful for the opportunity to gather here today. Uh, Lord, we do lift up uh, the Anchorage camp that we just mentioned. We just pray for them. Thank you that our high schoolers had a tremendous time over the last couple of days. We're uh, rejoicing in what you did through their time. And now for our middle school tomorrow, Mr. Errett and others, the staff, as they take them over, uh, just pray that you would uh, give them safety and also open their hearts uh, to your word. We pray now in just a moment as we turn to scripture that you would be honored in our time around your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I did forget one other announcement. Forgive me. Uh, those of you that are um, wanting more information about grace, our next starting point class, that is a kind of an introductory class that will teach you more about grace. If you're interested in church membership, that will be on uh, Wednesday, August 30th. That will be at 6.30 p.m. That is the night of the Kids for Truth um, uh, parent program or parent orientation. So if there's a conflict with that, please see me. I'll be glad to talk to you about that. And we will be meeting in the library. So have you ever played hide-and-seek with a really little kid? Uh, I remember a number of years ago, I've seen a couple little kids do this, and you say to them, hey, you want to play hide-and-seek? And they say, yeah. And they go like this. <laughs> you can't see me. You can't see me. I'm hidden. And you touch them on the shoulder. How did you find me? Sometimes I feel like we approach God that way. We, we somehow believe that he's sovereign and he's present everywhere, but in reality, we live as if he isn't sovereign and he lives nowhere among us. We got to live life the way we want to live life. We don't really think much about the fact that everything that we do in life, we are doing it before a holy and righteous God. And I don't say that to scare you or to startle you or to manipulate you, but it just happens to be true. And yet sometimes we worry far more about how we behave in front of people than how we behave in front of God. When somebody says to me, you know, whatever their action is, they know it's sinful, they know it's wrong, and they say something like this, well, I just can't control it. Well, what if you were in the process of committing that act and somebody walked in? What would you do? Oh, I would quit. I thought you said you can't control it. See, and the reality is sometimes, not to deny the realities of struggles with habitual sins, to be fair. However, we often forget that when we live our lives, every single decision that we make is played out before a holy and righteous God. Let me remind you just of this truth found in Scripture, a couple of verses. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 139, verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Now, here's why I mentioned this this morning, because very often when we hear that, we think of the super egregious sins that everybody knows are bad and wrong. 
But do we live before a holy and righteous God, understanding that even some of the Christian respectable sins, as we like to call them, that we just sin and we think, well, everybody does that, and we don't really worry much about it. We just keep doing it, even though Scripture says it's wrong, even though we know it's, it's against God's word. For some reason, we just continue to justify that action, and we don't stop and remember that even the quote-unquote respectable sins in God's holy eyes are still sin. Which brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount. Because when you think about Scripture, Psalm 119, verse 60 being one, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. And yet Jesus says in passages like Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Here's how I want us to think about this this morning. We're in Matthew 5. We're back in the section we were in last week, Matthew 5, verses 43 and following. And I want you to think about how you treat people in regard to living in front of a holy and righteous God. Let me say it this way. I want you to think today about how you treat people who hate you. I want you to think about how people, how you treat people who despise you, reject you, they are your enemy. How do you treat them? Well, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 40 through 47. He tells us how we are supposed to treat people who are our enemy. Here's what he says. Verse 43, we studied last week. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, if you were here last week, that was a verbal misunderstanding or not misunderstanding misinterpretation of the old testament the old testament nowhere ever says to hate your enemy this was something the religious elites changed added to distorted scripture to say that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy nowhere will you find that in scripture that was a verbal tradition that the religious establishment was practicing now we've studied that at length last week let's look at verse 44 in our text for today but i say to you my disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Remember, the, the religious establishment said, believed, that loving your neighbor was only loving people who look like you. I only have to love people, in their case, Israelites. I only have to love people who are from Israel. We might say it this way. I only have to love people who are Americans. We might even go further and say, we have to love people who only live in North Carolina. We might even go so far and say we only can love Southerners. As someone in our ministry, I won't name him, says, a Yankee is defined as anybody who lives or is from north of Burgaw. 
I'm guilty. I am from well beyond north of Burgal. So we in our minds twist God's commandments and say there's certain people who we don't have to love. We don't have to like them. I mean, if they're from the Northeast, nah, they're terrible human beings. If they're from another country, they're European or they're fill in the blank. We don't have to love them, as we said last week, or they have a different color skin than I do. I don't have to love them. You better read your Bible because your neighbor is everyone and you are called to love everyone because they are created in the image of God just like you. There's no place for racism, no place for judging somebody because they're different from me. They're from a different country or a different nationality or a different whatever. But here's where it gets really hard. Not only do you love your neighbor, you are called to love your enemies. I would say that Jesus teaches this with the assumption that you have enemies, I have people in my life, really not so much anymore, but in my last few years, that I would not be very high on their popularity, you know, scale. We all have people who dislike us, mistreat us. And maybe you're like the disciples in John 6 when the disciples heard Jesus' teaching and said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? Who can do this? I don't know your heart this morning, but it may very well be that in your heart of hearts, there is someone, a face, a name of someone that you consider an enemy. And not only do they mistreat you, if you're honest with yourself, maybe there is someone in your life who you hate and you wish nothing but ill intention toward that person. Again, I ask you, what commandments are you willing to break in front of a holy, righteous God? Jesus says that loving your enemies is a commandment that you are expected to obey. There's a vicious cycle that we fall into as people. Some people, we all know them, we've met them. There are people that are just downright cruel. There are people that are cruel. And the more they practice cruelty, the more they hate. And the more hateful they become, the more crueler they become, the crueler they become. And they set themselves on this pattern of living of hate and cruelty. And maybe there's someone in your life right now that is cruel to you. Maybe there's someone in your life right now that is hateful to you. How do we handle that? What do we do? Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want you to look at a parallel passage with me, and then we're going to look very specifically at what Jesus says of how we are supposed to treat people who are mistreating us. Let me read to you a parallel passage in Luke 6, verses 26 through 28, where Jesus said this. We alluded to this last Sunday. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I said it last week. I'll repeat it here. That if everybody likes you, you may very well be in trouble. I remember when I, my first week in ministry, when I was down in Orlando, Florida, our senior pastor, Pastor Lemp at the time, he came up to me, and I'd been there a few weeks, and he says, so Jay, you made anybody mad yet? And I didn't know how to answer that. The answer was, yes, I have. 
And I said, yes, sir, I've made a few people very upset. He said, good for you. That means you're doing something right. And by the way, the reason I made people mad is because when I became youth pastor, I had the audacity to say that we weren't playing basketball for an hour every Wednesday night. We were going to study the Bible on Wednesday night. And some of the parents were so angry that their poor little baby doesn't get to play basketball on Wednesday. Nope, we're going to study the Bible. And people were upset. To which I said, and? You're upset over that? You see what I'm saying? So if everybody speaks well of you, it may very well be you've compromised your life to the place. You're just not standing for truth anymore. So of course everybody likes you. And Jesus says, woe to you when people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Verse 27. But I say unto you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, let's take those couple of verses, Matthew 5 and the Luke passage, and let's look at four specific instructions that Jesus gives to us regarding how we treat our enemies. Number one, we are called to, wait for it, love them. Treat your enemies with kindness and respect. Regardless of your, what your emotions try to convince you to do. Do not, do not allow your feelings and emotions to become sovereign over your decision making. Your emotions are real. They're God-given. If we have time, we'll talk more about that later. But your emotions are God-given. It's part of who you are. It's God has expresses, expresses emotions. But when our emotions become sovereign... And we feel like that person walks by or you're thinking of that face or you're thinking of that name right now of that person who dislikes you and hates you and has mistreated you. And maybe in your heart, your emotion is hate. My friend, that does not give you the right to act on that emotion of hatred and take vengeance against them or to seek ill against them. Instead, we are called to treat our enemies with kindness and respect. In fact, Scripture teaches us that emotion should accompany biblical love. We're talking about this in our marriage class, Michelle and I will be teaching this year, is that in, in marriage, your commitment is what holds the marriage together. Emotions ebb and flow. You can't Please don't be dictated by your emotions and how you feel. Yes, it's part of who you are. Yes, God created you an emotional being. And he is, I would argue, an emotional being. But do not allow them to be your guiding light. In fact, however, to flip it around, emotions should flow when we rightfully love other people. Let me give you a couple of examples. First Peter verse one, chapter, chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, severe, a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. That means love each other intensely. And I don't know about you, but intensity brings emotion. I try to preach with a little emotion. I try to restrain my intensity because I think I can come on a little too strong sometimes. Sometimes I have to hold back. 
Okay, but there should be an intensity toward our love. And now you may be sitting there saying, well, that's okay, Jay, but that's directed toward brotherly love. That's, that's only directed toward people who are within the church or are within my family, to which I would push back and say, this kind of love applies to everybody. You are commanded to intensely love your neighbor as yourself. You are commanded to love intensely your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are commanded to love intensely your family. You are commanded to love intensity with intensity even those who hate you with great intensity. You are to love them. This is a hard saying. Who can do this? Now, love is admittedly more than a feeling, but it is certainly nothing less. Whether it's romantic love within a marriage or whether it's love within a friendship, love is not robotic and unfeeling. I do not believe Jesus is simply, and I'll illustrate this hopefully in a few minutes, Jesus is not illustrating love your enemy, just go through some ritualistic motions, throw them a couple bucks or a couple things with no feeling, no, no emotion, and just you know, be nice to him. He's arguing for something far greater than that. You engage them with absolute intense love for the purpose of showing them the way Jesus loved you when you were his enemy. And he died for you, sent his son to die for you. So, number one, we're called by Jesus to love our enemies. Number two, he tells us in those two texts, Matthew 5 and Luke 6, he tells us to do good to those who hate you by showing your enemies kindness. In other words, it shouldn't just be talk. It shouldn't just be words. It's kind of like within a marriage. Well, I love you. I just don't talk to you. I don't take care of you. I don't ever do anything with you. But man, I love you. Was the husband said, well, I told you I love you the day we got married 50 years ago. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Okay, wrong, wrong, wrong on many levels. Okay, love doesn't just talk. Talk is cheap. It does something. So let me give you several examples on this. How do we do good to people who hate us by showing them kindness. Let me give you some Old Testament examples. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Now, probably in your neighborhood, there's not a lot of oxes and donkeys wandering around. Okay? If, maybe, maybe you live out in the country somewhere, but probably not. So don't read that, well, there's no oxes or donkeys, my enemy doesn't own any of those, so I'm off, off the hook, okay? Insert cute little puppy dog, okay, if you have to, or something. You find him walking astray, you shall bring him home. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, it's in a ditch somewhere, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, you shall rescue it. Now think about how our natural bent goes. Imagine you're walking down the street and you see a, in our vernacular, you see somebody's dog running down the road or maybe it's trapped under a, something fell on it, it's in pain, it's hurting, and you're walking with a friend and they say, look at that dog. You say, that's my neighbor's dog. Well, we ought to take him home. Now, I hate my neighbor. I'm not, I hope that dog dies. Good for him. Twist the knife in his back. I hope he goes through misery. Well, they've had that dog 
We just had our dog die last week or whatever. 17 years we had that dog. And so now you think, well, that's our neighbor's dog. You know, I hate my neighbor. Just let him die. Well, in their day, this is a dog. It's just a pet. In their day, oxes and donkeys were a matter of survival. They were a matter of, of their business, running their, their business, making sure that they could plant food and they could eat. This was part of their livelihood. And so Jesus, or in the Old Testament there, Moses actually says that when you see your enemy's animal in distress and hurt and harmed and their livelihood on the line, you do the right thing, you love them, and you take it back to them. Don't keep it for yourself. Don't let it lay there and die. You do good to them. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, this is verses 21 and 22, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the Lord will reward you. Let me piggyback that with the Roman with the New Testament text, Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, here, here's a quote of that, vengeance of the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the whole imagery of heaping burning coals on someone's head, what does that mean? John Calvin wrote in his commentary on the book of Romans, he said this, he said, and I quote here, he said, either our enemy will be softened by kindness or if he is so ferocious that nothing may assuage him, he will be stung and tormented by the testimony of his conscience, which will feel itself overwhelmed by our kindness. Augustine added this. He said, we must understand these words thus. We should entice those who have hurt us to repentance by doing them good. For such coals of fire, that is, good deeds have the power to consume his spirit or to grieve him. Some have understood the idea of heaping coals of fire as revenge and vengeance and getting even. That is far from the picture. The picture is do good to this person, show them kindness, even though they may not humanly, on your estimation, deserve it. So you're heaping coals of conviction upon their life that they will repent and change. It is doing good to win them either to redemption if they are an unbeliever or to win them to where they then will return kindness to you. But even if they hate you, as Paul says, you live peaceably among all men as much as it depends on you. Several years ago, I, I had some conflict with a, with a person and uh, this person uh, called me. I, I, I was convicted. I had said some things I wasn't proud of. And so um, I called them, I called this person, and I said, hey, I just wanted to touch base. You know, our last conversation was, um, you know, a little heated. And I said, I'm just calling to ask you to forgive me for, you know, my choice of words may not have been, may not have been perfect. 
And this person responded and said, oh, Pastor, I'm, I'm so glad you called because I, I said some hateful things too. And I'm thinking to myself, praise the Lord. This is great. And so after this person had said what they said, they then turned around and attacked me all over again over the same thing that they had attacked me for before that started this debate. And I decided I am not doing this again. I am I'm not going around this merry-go-round again. We've already been through this. And I said, you know what? Clearly, we are never going to agree on this, and I'm not going to get wrapped up in this debate. To this day, I don't see this person anymore. It's from 20 years ago or whatever. Never had any more. I've, I've seen them a couple of times since. I've seen this person, and there has been no love loss for me. And you know what? I look back at that, and I say, I did what I could. I apologize for my harsh words that I did say, and this person would not, would not heed what I was trying to do to restore the relationship. And so, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But even when peace is not a possibility, you are not excused to mistreat the person who refuses to have peace with you. You are commanded by God to do good to that person, not for selfish gain, but so that they may repent and return back to a right relationship with the Lord. So, number one, we are called to love our enemies. Number two, we're called to do good to our enemies. And then number three, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6 that we are to bless those who curse us. In Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice. Okay, now listen, do not rejoice when your enemy fails or falls. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. In other words, loving your enemy means that you are not rooting against them. You're not, we'll get to this in the last one, but you are not praying that something terrible will happen to them. And when it does happen to them, you are mourning with those who mourn not rejoicing over someone else's hardship and difficulty and thinking to yourself, yeah, they got what they deserved. What if you got what you deserved every time? Where would you be? I, I don't know about you, but I'm profoundly thankful that God doesn't give me what I deserve. And so we better tread very carefully when we view a person who is created in the image of Almighty God and have ill intention toward anyone and pray and wish anything against them. And when they fall and their hardship comes, you know who should be the first person at their door offering them help, offering them assistance is the person who claims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your job isn't to wish ill on them and rejoice when they fall. Your job as a believer is to help them get up and restore them back to where they can live their lives. This is a hard truth. Who can, who can do that? Number four, 
Pray for those who use you and persecute you. Jesus tells us in Luke 6, loving our enemies includes fervently desiring for them to repent of their sin if they're an unbeliever and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Loving our enemies includes taking them before the throne of God and pleading with the Lord for his grace and mercy to be upon their lives. I don't know about you, but I can't hate in my heart someone that I pray for regularly. And oh, by the way, always remember this. In times of conflict, we are always tempted to pray that that other person changes. You also need to pray you might be the one who needs to change. Especially if your attitude toward an enemy, a brother or sister in Christ or someone, if your attitude toward that person is ill will, my dear friend, you are the one that is equally in sin. That our attitude should be one of love and appreciation. Now, very quickly, I love these two illustrations. There's a positive illustration and then a negative illustration, if you will. Um, Read verse 44, we won't comment on it, but Jesus says, uh, excuse me, verse 45, he says, So do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The first illustration comes at the latter part of verse 45, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God demonstrates his indiscriminate love toward people who are righteous because of their faith in Christ and those who are not. In God's common grace, he does not spare the sun or the rain from the wicked. Rain in the Old Testament time or in any agricultural community, rain was, is seen as a sign of God's universal benevolence. And God's common grace provided the necessary sunshine and rain for people to grow food, to have water to drink, and to stay warm. God's common grace serves as a standard by which we must measure our love. You know, this, this, this verse really kind of got to me. Because I started thinking to myself, you know, the Bible is theological to be sure, right? We draw our theology from Scripture. We don't take our theology and supersede what we, as D.A. Carson said, jolly well wish was in the text. We can't read our philosophy. We can't read our theology into Scripture as if this is a proof text to believe whatever you jolly well wish was there. You can't do that. That's in, that is... That is inconsistent. That is also dishonest with the text, right? So the other thing is, because we still draw theology from Scripture, but God doesn't just make general theological statements. In other words, he could have just said, you know what, you need to love your enemy because in my common grace, I love him too. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, this picture of God loving even his enemies to do what? To give them rain, to give them food, to give them sun, to provide for their needs. While we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us. And yet Jesus paints this picture and says, this is how I treat not only the righteous, not only those who are obedient to me, this is not how I treat only those who are following me, I treat others this way too. 
I give them what they need to live their lives. And you know what? You ought to do the same. If God provides for the wicked, not excusing their behavior, not justifying what they're doing, they still need to believe in Christ to be saved from their sin. Of course, of course, of course, of course. However, even in God's loving kindness and common grace, he treats even his enemies with love. Now, the second picture he gives us is in verse 46. And he says, for who, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. You think you hate tax collectors in our culture. They were very much hated in Jesus's day. Even the no good, terrible, cheater tax collectors do that. They love people who love them. And if you greet only your brothers, now insert to there, if you only in, uh, it, greet Israelites, if you only greet North Carolinians, your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If we as believers are called out from the culture to be different from the world, if we only love people who love us, what good is that? If I love my enemies the way Jesus commands and heap coals of fire on their head that may lead them to repentance, that's what God has called us to do. He's called us to be different, to be salt, to be light, not to take revenge and vengeance like everybody else in the culture, in the world, not to seek to get even with someone who wrongs us. God calls us to be sure that we are treating people with grace and love and mercy. And so today, as we close this section, you may ask, well, when do we love our enemies? Let me leave you with these two answers to this question. When do we love our enemies? One, even when our lives are threatened. In Matthew 5, 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We also are called to, now this one may be interestingly more difficult, we are also commanded to love our enemies even when our precious little egos are threatened. Do not resist the one who is evil, Matthew 5, 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. Don't just love the people who do good to you. Don't just love the people who love you. Who do you love? You love the persecutor. You're called to love the belittler. belittler. That was easier to write than say. You're called to love the backbiter. You're called to love the gossip. You're called to love the crank. You're called to love the rude. You're called to love the arrogant, the condescender, the narcissist, the bully, the liar. And even the person in your heart of hearts, even the person you wish was dead, 
You're called to love him. You're called to love her. Not just with your words, not with trite little sayings, but with your actions. Fervently, intensely, showing Christ-like love even to those who hate you. That, my friend, is what Jesus has commanded us to do and how he has commanded us to live. Admittedly, we need Holy Spirit empowerment to do that. But we are called to love our enemies, treat them well, and allow the Lord to do his good work in their lives. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that challenges us each and every week. That even in areas of life where we wish this was easier, that we didn't have to love everybody, that we didn't have to love people who were our enemy. God, it would be a lot easier if we only had to love people who love us. It would be more convenient, that's for sure. And yet you have called your disciples, those who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be different. We do live under your, under, your, under your sovereign care. We live under your ever-seeing eye. And God, may we never brush this commandment to the side and believe it's kind of a one we can do or not do. This is one you've commanded us to live so that you may be glorified. We ask that as we close our service in just a moment that if there is someone here today that is unsure of their salvation, maybe they are not not sure whether or not they've ever received Christ, that they may see someone before they leave. If there's a believer here today, that there is a face, a name, someone in their heart, that they do have a difficult time and they hate them and they do wish ill on them. God, that they would repent even today and make that right between you and possibly between the other person as well. We ask your blessing on our closing moments of the service and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask Scott to come and lead us in this closing song of response. So let's stand together as Scott leads.